Jesus as our sacrifice, after all, we are the ones who break the bread, allows us to transfer our hostility to him as an innocent victim. As a firstborn male or a virgin girl, we kill him. Communion, the Eucharist, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. everybody to In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser. I'm here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Here we go. And Michael Harden. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Last week we uh, we finished, we started touching on talking about the Eucharist or communion for uh, those Protestants out there who are like me when I grew up. Um, and uh, we thought this is a topic definitely worth continuing on in the discussion because I kid you not, this um, topic was literally life-changing for me. And and if you're like me, growing up Protestant, where it's communion and it's this thing you do maybe once a month and, or something like that, you might be thinking, well, why is that life-changing? I mean, it's one of those top things where it's kind of like you do it because you're supposed to do it, but it, it kind of really had not a lot of meaning. We tried to put meaning into it, but it it was, uh, if I could be brutally honest, it was almost like a drudgery. It was like, oh, it's communion Sunday. We have to uh, kind of put on the, the solemn music and go through the motions and be really quiet and try to get some kind of meaning out of this. So some, you know, it's like quiet prayer and, you know, um, confessing your sins, you know, quietly to God. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to knock Protestants. What I'm saying though, is it didn't have the, uh, the meaning that it has for me now. For me, it's um, and and I don't want to spill it all out now because as we continue in the discussion, but it um, it, it's taken on such a, a profound meaning to me that that frankly, I hate now how Protestants have so downplayed it, because to me that's one of the main reasons to gather now is partaking in that together. So anyway, we're gonna we're gonna open this up and and look into the the meaning of this. And and Michael, you are the one who actually started me on this journey. And then uh, Steve Crosby came right alongside you picking up on things that you taught and developed it as well. And and kind of took me on this journey where I am now, where now this is something that I love. I look forward to any time I get to partake of it with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing that I think um, we've, many Christians have missed out on the beauty of this. And so, um, Michael, why don't I just kick it over to you? Um, what, what is it about the Eucharist? What, what's, um, what's the background with it? I, I mean, I don't even know where you want to start with this. So I'm just going to hand it over to you. Well, you... You asked what's so important about it, okay? So we can we can go at that from an, the question from a number of different directions. One, we could ask the liturgical question. Two, we can ask the theological question. Or three, uh, we can ask the anthropological question. So where I'm going to begin is with the anthropological. The, the history of the liturgy of the Eucharist is very important and very, very interesting, and students... Uh, of the Eucharist that wanted you know do the work they would want to consult uh, Joseph Jungmann's uh, two-volume critical edition, the history of the Mass, 
uh, or a history of the Roman Mass. And he has a, some smaller summaries of, of his work. But Joseph Jungmann, and um, you need to understand the, what the, the, the Mass is in terms of Christianity. So when we get to um, understanding that this practice, this ritual practice of breaking bread and drinking from a, 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 some wine from a cup, uh, is it lies at the heart of early Christian worship. Uh, we can trace this not only in the second century, uh, but back, of course, into the first century, uh, and even as early as uh, the year 50, 51, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Okay, So at some point within that early 17-year period, the Eucharist begins to become something that is done. And we know the problem that Paul faced in Antioch was that they were going to have two Eucharists, one with Jews and one with Gentiles. You couldn't have, they couldn't share that common Eucharistic table together. And Paul saw that as absolutely the opposite of what was supposed to be. So that should already tell you right off the bat that there are going to be two different readings of the Eucharist in the early church and in the New Testament. And the one's going to be oriented toward a sacrificial reading. And the other one is not. So that's just, we should already have the clue. The setup is right there at Antioch. But when we, when we and, and, and so we could come at this liturgically and watch the development of this ritual process, particularly after it becomes uh, the state religion, after, after the Constantine, uh, reign of Constantine, uh, you know, and then all the things that start accruing on it. Now, personally, I love the Mass. I love the ancient prayers, I love the Te Deum, I love the Nicene Creed, I love the Lord's Prayer. I even have a sacramentary in my office here, which is the big red book the priest has on the altar with all the prescribed prayers. But, uh, so there's that, and you could do all that work, okay. Uh, then there's the historical side of it. Okay, let's go to the Reformation. What is transubstantiation? What is consubstantiation? What does it mean that the uh, bread and the cup are a sign or a symbol in the Zwinglian uh, frame of reference? Uh, and we can just start getting into all kinds of things in and around metaphysics and how Luther would say is means is, you know, and um, the breakup between the Lutherans and the Swiss at that point. And, um, of course, we all know that we were influenced here in America far more by the Swiss reform tradition uh, through, through, through England and on into America. And the Lutheran tradition is, it's there, but it's not dominant, just like you have the Episcopal Church everywhere, but it's not dominant. But Protestantism, Protestants are basically, uh, they see the bread as bread, they see the, the cup is a, either grape juice or wine, and that's all it is, you know. Uh, and then some Protestants want to get a little mystical, and so they go, oh, I'm really doing something, or I'm really eating something magical, and I'm going to get superstitious and have goody feelings about it. Ah, okay, uh, that's the pietistic route, and you can take that if you want, if that's what makes you feel better. But really, when you come at it from an anthropological perspective, you're asking the question of why Jesus would do such a thing. Why would he take his common tradition and this is, this is part of his common personal ritual tradition. Whenever he's at a meal, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it out. This is done in the feeding of the 5,000. It's done at the, the so-called Passover meal in the synoptics. And it's done again in the um, 
We're on the road to Emmaus. So this is evidently some kind of personal practice of his. So why does he tie that practice then to a ritual meal? And, and what's the whole point of the ritual meal? Is Jesus aware of the absurdity, the obscenity, the blasphemy of saying, this cup is my blood, drink of it. To drink blood is abhorrent to begin with, right? But to, if you're a Jew, you don't drink blood. Right. Right? right? So this is, this, is, this is already abhorrent on any number of levels. But, of course, the cup gets defined as the cup of forgiveness, which we've already discussed. It's not the cup of wrath. It's the cup of forgiveness. So the, the anthropological reading now, if it's a cup of forgiveness, what's it forgiving? It's forgiving our sin. What is our sin? Oh, our general sin. I had these thoughts. I did these acts. I say, oh, Heavenly Father, please forgive me over and over, and I go into sin management, right? No, 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 no. It's, it's, the, it's the sin of what happens when we gather together and we hate together. That's the most powerful sin in the world, when a group gathers together and hates together because they will kill, right? And so we in the Eucharist, we come to this and we acknowledge we are fundamentally persecutors. We, we don't take on the I'm a victim mentality, okay? In the Eucharist, we take on the I am the persecutor mentality. I'm the one that's bringing this about. I'm the one that's doing this. And it eliminates, it eliminates any, any need to jump into the I'm a victim status because now when one is forgiven, one becomes the forgiving victim, and the forgiving victim never, ever wails about their victimage. Right. They, they just, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we break free from the victim mentality in the Eucharist by recognizing we're persecutorial. In other words, we have a doctrine of sin, and it runs very deep. And we do need to be forgiven. I'm, I'm appalled at the stuff I see on Facebook, these Christians that go, the Father doesn't look at us through sin. The Father's, we don't need to be, we don't need to be forgiven. The Father doesn't need to forgive. And it's just like, okay, you know, that's all nice and good, but it's not realistic. In yeah. reality, it is forgiveness that grounds our, our relationship with the Father. You know, so if you don't have that, you don't have anything. And like you said, you can you highlight how you were talking about the, um, that we're all persecutors? Sure. When we when we come to this meal, normally we've typically come at it well one of several ways. One is that the, for the Catholics, it's called the sacrifice of the mass, and they are re the priest is on the altar re sacrificing Jesus. Okay, Protestants said, "Oh no 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 no, Christ died once for all, once for all, once for all. Can't can't re sacrifice him." Protestants at this point miss something very very important. The meal is given a specific sacrificial context, and we are to think in terms of this. And when we think in terms of sacrifice, we are we are now because we are aware, uh, thankfully, to the to the work of Rene Girard and others, but primarily Rene, that we come to this ritual, and if we are doing it really properly. We are both conscious and non-conscious at the same time. We're conscious in that we are 
repeating a non-conscious process. Right? When a crowd goes crazy against somebody, they're not conscious. They're not conscious. Their egos are all now in the collective. And they're just behaving as a collective. Um, and we're going to experience this process as we go into the Eucharist. Now, sadly, we've sanitized the Eucharist. And this, to me, is horrible. And I was in a, a, a church. It was the oldest church I'd ever preached in. It was, uh, it's, the foundations were laid in like the 10th or 11th century. And uh, then the building in the 13th, and then it had been added on to it. It was a totally cool place, totally, totally awesome place. A small Anglican church and a place called Kildwick in England. And I was in there with the rector who was become a, a very good friend over the years. I said, I said, look at this altar. He says, he says, it's it's really nice, isn't it? I said, it's all wrong. I said, it, where's the blood? Where's the blood stains? You know, why why do why do we sanitize this thing and clean it up? You know, at the end the priest does the little sprinkling with his fingers to get all the kind of fold the napkins also proper and put it all back in place, you know. What are they doing? They're creating order out of disorder, order out of chaos, the mimetic chaos. They're, they're doing all that, but they're sanitizing it. And so we can actually walk away from the Eucharist, either doing the feel sorry for Jesus thing, Lord, I'm sorry that you had to die for my sins. We can do that, or we can recognize that we give into these non-conscious processes and we need to become more aware of them. And we become more aware of them. When we, each time we break this bread, we become a Roman soldier. We become a Pharisee in the crowd or a chief priest or a scribe. Or we, we become one of the crowd that mocks him. We become the thief on the cross that says, save, save us, you know, you're so, so big and strong. You're a, you know, you know whatever. We have to recognize that we do this in our lives with our family and friends and co-workers and neighbors and others. Uh, we think judgmental thoughts all the time. Yeah. And those have to get put out of our heads so that literally we don't judge. And that if the Eucharist doesn't teach you anything, it does teach you not to judge because you're forgiven. So the, the, the Eucharist also implies ethics. Because you're taking the body of Christ into yourself. You're, you're taking who he is. He is nonviolent. He is non-retributive. He is non-sacrificial. You're, you're, you're becoming that. So the, the Eucharist has these ethical, social components that can be, you know, used in the congregation, you know, to help the congregation as it moves forward in its life together. It has eschatological components, uh, because the uh, there's no doubt that at least in the in the second century church and following, if not already in the first century, the Eucharist is getting connected to the Messianic feast of Isaiah 25, or the Messianic meal of the Book of Revelation. Remember that book is not well liked for several hundred years, but there is in the church fathers plenty of texts that talk about the eschatological meal. Okay, where we will all sit at table together in the kingdom. And so the eschatological themes get tied into the Eucharist as well. So again, there's a number of ways to approach this whole question of what it is. 
But when you fundamentally lay it out, the best thing, I, in my opinion, is to have an approach that is full-orbed. It's theological. It's anthropological. It's ethical. It's psychological slash spiritual. It could even be mystical. But it's it's congruent because it's all non-sacrificial. I um, sat in a gathering, Michael, where you were sharing on the Eucharist. And um, it, you might remember in Steve Crosby's living room back in North Carolina. <laughs> and it, Crosby. It, it was so powerful because you, you said, we're taking the Eucharist all wrong. And we don't understand this. And you showed us how the tone of really what we're doing when we take it. And you, and you took the bread and you got a knife and you said, this, this is Jesus. And using some very strong language that I won't re- repeat here because you really wanted to drive home the point. And I'll tell you, it did because it was jarring. It really shook us out of our um, kind of our ritual apathy. And and you said, you said, this is Jesus. We're going to break his body. This Jesus, is Jesus. Father, exactly. Jesus, you this and that blankety blank. Do and do any better. What's your problem? Blah, 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 blah. Yep. I yep. And you pass it around and had us all break off a piece, basically saying the same, the same thing and then eating it, showing how we are, dev- we are the devourers. We yeah. are the ones who devour one another and we devoured Christ and then, and then the blood of forgiveness. But that man, that was a wake up call. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the room because it was like, this this is really a highlight of of it's showing like you said it's showing who we are but it's also taking his life in so there's there's a powerful component to it where it's becoming aware of the uh, the persecutor we are like you said the scapegoaters that we are um how we we single people out and 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 uh, like you said we're, we it, it you can't play the victim card at the at the Eucharist table and then uh, and then the transformational power which which really hits on the whole thing of when Paul talks about taking it in an unworthy manner you know we would be like oh it means i need to sit there and f- you know, um, think about all the bad thoughts I had. And uh, like you said, but, but it was, it, it was realizing that how can I acknowledge that I'm a persecutor and take in the life of Christ and then turn around and hate my brother? Because this is a, like you, you touched on it, Michael, when you shared, this is something that in a community, a community of believers, a church, this is something that is, is uniting because we realize I'm a persecutor. And so I have a I'm going to want to single somebody out in here. I'm going to want to treat my brother badly. And so this is saying I'm acknowledging that that's in me, but I'm taking the life of Christ into me to transform me so I don't do that. Can I read a paragraph from my book, My Medic Theory and Biblical Interpretation? Yeah. Jesus as our sacrifice, after all, we are the ones who break the bread allows us to transfer our hostility to him as an innocent victim. As a firstborn male or a virgin girl, we kill him. And yes, there is a benefit. His shed blood becomes our drink. Blood shed for our forgiveness, because in his death there is only forgiveness. There is no wrath of God here. There is only our human wrath, our need for sacrifice. And then a little bit later, in this meal we acknowledge this our corporate propensity to hurt others and expel others in order to create our in-group, we acknowledge this by breaking bread. And we are also forgiven as we drink the cup. This is good news, 
news far better than the archaic religious practices of violent human culture. The Eucharist, then, is the most anti-cultural institution in the world and breaks down our sacrificial religion, no matter whether your liturgy is maximalist or minimalist, whether you hold to a real presence or a symbolic presence. The real question about what is occurring in the celebration of this meal of bread and wine need not elude us. It has to do with our fundamental human condition. The Eucharist addresses our need to kill. Exactly. That's that's, that, that's really good. And uh, and and that's why when when I look at this, because the circles I had been in growing up and stuff, it was um, there was a huge emphasis that was placed upon worship, you know, singing, music, bringing in the presence of God, and and I'm and I'm not I'm not knocking singing. That's that's not my point here. But Jesus didn't say when you get together sing songs. <laughs> he said, do this yes. in remembrance of me. And, and it's not, it's not that I'm going after some ritual that we need to do this proper form. It's that for him to say that there's a re he, there was nothing else he said about when you get together to do these things, but that he said to do, right. that means there is something transformational about that. There is something really important that he's driving at. And that's why it really troubles me in the Protestant circles I grew up in and stuff, how we've made that such a minor thing. And then we'll spend, I've gone to churches where they never do the Eucharist, they, they'll, they'll, but they'll put all this emphasis on the song service, the worship, the music, the, and, you know, bringing in the presence of God, bringing in the presence of God. And yet nobody leaves changed. And my whole thing is, if we would just do what Jesus said to do, we might actually experience transformation. <laughs> and, and, and see, that's where I, for me, because this was all being unlocked when I was first um, starting as a teacher. This became transformational for me because I would get those students that would drive me psycho, right? And I would actually come to the communion, to the, to the Eucharist table and be like, I need this yeah. because I need the transformational power of Christ. I need to take him in realizing I want to pound those kids. Yeah. I want to, I want to humiliate them. I want to, I want to take vengeance on them. But going, I'm taking this in, Christ, because I realize this is who I am. I'm a persecutor. And I'm trusting that you're going to transform me. That I'm taking this in, and I'm going to drink your blood, take in the forgiveness, and you're going to change me. And you're going to help me love these kids. I went to that table depending on his power. Yeah. I went the, the same faith that the charismatics go in their worship services. I bring that to the communion table yeah. because for me, it's like that is that's what Jesus said to do because it's transformational, and I I've experienced the change. I've experienced it where I've been able to go to school the next day or, or that week and be like, "Wow, I didn't retaliate at that comment." Wow, I actually forgave that kid. You know, you almost stand and look at yourself in shock. You know, right, right. something is happening here. So let's go, let's go um, take a little a little bit of a turn here. Let's go to where most Protestant or evangelicals uh, begin in their approach to uh, the Eucharist. Of course, they wouldn't call it the Eucharist because that's Catholic, and so we're going to call it uh, uh, communion. But, Michael, help us unpack uh, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 11 
uh, I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that on the same night that the Lord was betrayed, he broke bread. And perhaps even tie it into uh, chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 16, is not this uh, uh, bread which we break the, the body, you know, um, and we who are many become one loaf because we partake of one bread and, and so on and so forth. Um, because most evangelicals or Protestants have grown up hearing uh, that scripture quoted or, or read about communion and especially as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Nobody really knew what that meant, at least not in, in uh, light of the uh, message that you're, you're bringing to us. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the Lord. And, and so that means, like Lauren was saying, that we have to repent of every little sin that we've committed that week or, or that month or that year or whatever. And um, so that when we, when we go up and, and drink the grape juice and eat the, the bread, we're worthy. And obviously... Listening to you, uh, the things that I've read, uh, you know, Stephen Crosby gets mentioned a few times on our podcast, listening to Stephen. Obviously, we're taking a whole different approach than the one that we kind of grew up with. Yes. Uh, so can you help us unpack that maybe? Well, the, the, the um, first Corinthians text, so you only have, you have the three synoptic gospels have the Eucharistic narrative. The fourth gospel doesn't. Uh, but it's saturated. It's saturated with uh, Eucharistic uh, symbolism and baptismal symbolism. Water, blood, spirit. I mean, just saturated with it. Um, so, but if we take this Corinthians text, we we are again helped out uh, in the 80s and 90s as the sociologists began applying their tools to the biblical text. One of the things they noted was um, that in Corinth, we, we have an elite group of people who are gathering together for a meal. And in that meal, they're breaking bread and having the cup. They're, they're doing that. Um, but the poor in that congregation are in the other room. And so they're not participating in that meal. It's not one body. And Paul was saying, how can you let, how can you have this? How, how can you have people that, that are your brothers and sisters sitting in the other room? But because they're not wealthy enough to be able to bring something to the potluck, they can't eat. Right? So you, you have those hierarchical divisions being addressed by Paul in with regard to the Eucharist. The phrase, for I receive from the Lord, um, it's the use of apa here, not ek. Uh, he doesn't receive this by direct revelation. That would be ek. Uh, apa to kuriu refers, this is what I've received that, that goes back to so-and-so who said it to so-and-so, and it came from the Lord. Okay? He's citing the tradition now. Okay? Okay. So if you, what he's going to recite is the tradition that's been given to him. Now you'll notice Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul, they each are slightly different in their wordings and emphases with regard to things like the words of institution, right? The synoptics have none of this uh, unworthiness stuff, but Paul has to address what he considers to be very uh, it's what he fought against in Antioch. If, you, if you, Jews and Greeks can't get together, well, 
and rich and poor can't get together, then the gospel's not breaking these barriers down. It's not doing its work, right? So I received from the Lord what I delivered to you on the night he was betrayed. The night he was betrayed, we are now, it's just not on the, you know, on the Passover, he took, no, it's not, no, it's, it's the night of his betrayal. So we're locked in now to this, this something that has to do with victimage and innocence. Good. Right? When he had given thanks, uh, he, I'm sorry, when he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, whereas the Lucan narrative, is, it's got the blessed. Took, took, gave thanks, blessed, or blessed, broke, gave. This is my body, which is for you. There's no participle here. There's no noun. It's just, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you? Given for you? There's no, there's no verb. Mm. In the same way, after the cup, after supper, he said, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, remembering me. Remember who I am. Remember what I'm about. Remember what I taught you. Remember what I did. Remember me. If they're in a personal relationship with him as a living Lord, why do they need to remember? Because it's very, very easy to allow that personal relationship thing to turn into goofball mysticism without the concrete remembrance of Jesus of Nazareth. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death yes. until you come. Where we are, death again, right? And then comes this, look, if you gather together and you don't recognize that this meal is about all of us participating, uh, rich or poor, Jew or Greek, whatever, male and female, right? If it's about everybody being able to participate, that's been, you know, part of the baptized community. Bada boom, bada bing. If if you and your Eucharistic thinking don't have room for somebody, then you are eating and drinking unworthy because you are not recognizing that by wanting to exclude such and such a person or such and such a group, you are persecuting, and then you want to be forgiven, but you don't want to forgive. Right. So you're you're you're, you're coming at this thing as though it's magic, and if you come at anything as though it's magic. The human mind is so powerful, it it can make it can make its reality happen. And if you come in at this thing magically and you're eating, you're doing this, you're going to reap some karma. Paul says, right? You can't. You Did can't he really do. say karma? No, he said. <laughs> no, but, but what's important is he does say, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without discerning. Yes. What body? Eats and drinks damnation to himself. But what yeah. body? Is it the bread? Yeah. Is the bread right. representative of the people? The church? Is it the body of Christ? Is not in this letter the body of Christ the church? It's also the bread and the meal. It's also the human Jesus risen from the dead. I mean, it's all of it's a it's a a, a many sided thing, isn't it? And well, and and that's why I tied it to First um, Corinthians ten, beginning with verse sixteen. Mm -hmm. where he says, we all become one body because we all eat of that one flesh, of, of that, that one, flesh. one bread. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So um, it is a proper discerning of the body of Christ, not, not a um, figurine 
hanging on a, a sterling silver cross that we have around our neck. Right. We're talking about the, the body of Christ, which is us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. So to clarify, it's it's he's saying when you when you come to the to take the Eucharist, just just as Michael, you pointed out the divisions that were happening in that community between, in their case, it was socioeconomic levels was bringing division. It's it's that shouldn't be happening in your midst. There's there should be no division among you, right. And so, so it's not the sit here and get quiet and, okay, what did I do wrong this week? And I need to clear everything out so I'm not taking it in an unworthy fashion. It's, do I hate that guy who sits across the aisle from me? Did I tell him off this week? <laughs> it's just recognizing the various ways in which no matter who you are, uh, you hurt people. Or even if you don't have any concrete examples from the week. You're still identifying with that very deep structural element that if you got in a crowd today and they all were calling for the head of somebody, would you stand out and say, oh, no, 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 don't do that in a crowd if you're in a crowd? No, you're probably going to remain silent (laughs) and thus complicit. Or if if you're going to join in and say, yes, he deserves it. That's why, you know, when when and if Mr. Trump runs again, uh, sadly, he's going to just be setting himself up to be a scapegoat. And when everybody mm-hmm. starts coming down on him, even though I'm not a fan of his, I'm going to have to stand up and say, you guys are trying to make him a scapegoat, and you can't, you know, I understand you don't like him, but you can't do that. Right. And and see, what you, what you hit on is something that, that's, disturbing because it's true in in the sense that that we all like to look for example like at nazi germany and go had i been there i would not have oh yeah and and yet what the eucharist table says is yes you would have you would have and 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 what's even more disturbing is they've done all kinds of uh, psychological experiments and stuff to prove that yes you would Oh, yeah. um, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the ones they did where they had the person push the button to send a zap to the person. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, that was done in the 1950s. They since ruled that those kind of experiments being a little too harsh, but but they would have somebody um, call somebody on a phone and they had somebody supposedly on the other uh, other side of the room where a person had a button where they could send them a shock. And they would say they would order the person, um, OK, give them a shock. And the vast majority of people would. And what they found is that the closer in proximity the person was who was giving them the order, the more likely they were to do it as well. So you had a smaller percent when it was over a phone call. But when the person was standing right next to the person, it was like 99% of the people followed the order. Simple yeah. Yeah, and these are and these were all uh, uh, these were all people who would have said, "Oh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't have stood alongside the Nazis. I wouldn't have done that." And and it, it it's a it's a devastating moment for the human race to realize it. It, it proves out what uh, Rene Girard has taught in the mimetic theory and stuff like that of, of being imitators. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I I would like to think I'm a basically a nice guy, you know, um, but I still. And get angry 
And so I have to be aware of what is it that triggers me? You know, how can I recognize it as it's in its onset so that I can stop it and cut it off before it gets powerful? Right? Yeah. What do I need to do then for myself for self-care? Because I'm either feeling hurt or ashamed or something. So I have to ask, what can I do for self-care? And part of that involves just turning the other into an object of the Father's blessing rather than an enemy. You know, So there's Jesus gives us very concrete ways, very concrete ways to handle these things. It's interesting that in Paul's account in, in uh, his letter to the church at Corinth, he starts out with, this was on the night the Lord was betrayed. You brought, you brought that out. This was the night the Lord was betrayed, that he took bread, he broke it, and he said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And he said, as often as you drink this, you testify of my death. And we don't like that. We don't like that message. I, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people actually from the pulpit during a communion service read that and say, well, of course the death is important, but if he didn't resurrect from the dead, <laughs> then he was just another martyr. So let's concentrate on the resurrection. And let's get off this... Let's get off this death thing, you know? And and it's like, wait a minute. We are all betrayers. Jesus yeah. said, you're all going to leave me. Yeah. We're all betrayers, and we're also all the persecutors, the ones who put them to death. Yes. And so part of the Eucharist is that we testify of that every yeah. time we come to the table. We don't, it's not, we testify of the resurrection, we testify of his death. That's right. And I think there's something in that message that we have to give weight to. It's part of our transformation. It's part of our born again experience. Yeah, because you think about when you, when you take the Eucharist, when you take communion with that understanding that, that I'm a persecutor. How can you afterwards stop afterwards and go, oh, that group of people or that evil group of sinners over there or this, you know, you can't walk away from the table with yeah. that. Because if you really understand what you're doing when you're taking communion, you're going to become keenly aware that you, when you step away from that table, I'm just engaging in that behavior again. Oh, yeah. So we, we step away from the table and continue to persecute. Is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly, and and that's when and 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 see to me for what Michael was saying. That's what Paul was addressing when he talked about the unworthy fashion. Is is you you continue in that path of separation, of dividing, of sacrificial thinking. What did you just do? You might as well just had styrofoam and you know just you know did a little jig or something. I mean it it was pointless. And 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 for me, I even look when I look at the early church. You know, when they're, as they're being persecuted, how much more, we, we go, how did they do that? How did they go through that kind of persecution? I really believe the Eucharist was a huge, played a huge role in their empowerment. The Eucharist, as in the living life of Christ infused in that, was where they, they had the power 
in to walk through that. Because if you're daily being persecuted, you're going, you know what? I'm just like the Romans. I'm just like I'm just like the people that are persecuting me. It it changes your response to the persecution because you realize you're you're just like them apart from Jesus' forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So a, a commitment to nonviolence looks a lot different when we're living in a society that how do, how do I say this? Um, there's not a government that's trying to kill me because I've converted to Christianity or to Jesus or however you want to say that. There's, I, I, you know, um, I've got within relative, uh, uh, you know, circles, I, I've got peace in my life. I mean, you know, I've got a job uh, where I get along with most people there. I've got a neighborhood that sees me with my Bible under my arm, get in my car and go to church every Sunday. And, and nobody's really saying anything one way or the other. I mean, maybe they think I'm weird because I go to church, but you know, but, but it's relatively peaceful in my life for the most part with occasional blips on the, you know, um, and, and so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, I set up these scenarios where, Yes, but what if somebody broke into my front door and tried to do harm to my wife or my kids? You know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I, I probably should have a Glock sitting by my, my bedside just in case, you know. So we set up these kind of weird scenarios. But for the most part, we say, yeah, I'm a peacemaker. I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. But the real issue is, are we at peace in our own heart? Are we... Are we at a place, uh, we, we don't have persecution in our country the way uh, they did in uh, the Lord's time or, or even for the first 300 years after the Lord uh, with the government, the reigning government at that time, you convert to, to uh, being a follower of the way and you're writing a death sentence on your own life. Well, and, that, uh, that, that, that would only be true... Uh, the, the, the the Christians have have uh, over zealously overplayed the martyrdom narrative in the early church. The, the the fact is the the martyrs were kind of few and far between, and most persecution was local. Uh, there's really only uh, two persecutions that are are uh, uh, regional, empire wide, and that's especially toward the very very end of empire there under Diocletian. But the, mm-hmm, right. the notion that, that if you were a Christian, you were going to be a martyr, that's not the case. It's po- The possibility could exist, and you could be hearing about it in other places where their governors were doing certain things. But it wouldn't necessarily exist in your locale. Well, and, and I don't disagree. I, I do agree with that, and you're right. But it always over, hung over your head that it, the possibility was there. Yeah, that yeah. it could yeah. happen yeah. in your region. We right. don't even live with that possibility. No, no, uh, at least not right now. No, and, the, and no. So it, so we can interpret. Not that we should, but we can interpret uh, certain scriptures, including uh, the uh, scriptures around the Eucharist, in a whole wrong way, 
because, well, I don't have persecution. I don't, I'm not a persecutor. I'm not a, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm, I'm good with God. But as we've talked um, on multiple occasions on this podcast, we make a God in our own image rather than God who God is. And then say, well, we're good with the God that we just created. <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, yeah. and wouldn't that go right in line with uh, with John um, John's letter, or you know, whoever wrote it, which we won't get into now, but where where he said, if if you say you have no sin, then then you're a liar. Mm-hmm. That would be we, we go. Oh, everybody has sin, but it's it's it, when you go to what we're talking about, it's not just oh, I had some bad thoughts or I I told a lie this week. It's it's I am a persecutor. I, I hate it, people. I I would like to see certain people wiped off the face of the planet. Certain people really annoy me and bother me, and the world would be better off without them. Exactly. And if I can't acknowledge that, then I'm a liar. That changes the whole the whole tone on it. And and then and then I'm also thinking about Jim with with what you were saying about well, how does that play into today? Um, I wrote a couple notes down while you were talking because I was thinking about you know we saw what how this plays out today during um, the last election cycle and stuff with with the extreme animosity that Christians had towards certain groups of people. Um, I'm not going to name groups, but, but, you know, or what are people of a different political persuasion? Um, what we see is that as human beings, we will always find someone to sacrifice. We're sacrificial. And, and if we don't come to Jesus as our sacrifice, our sacrifice, not the father's, he's ours. We, we killed him. If we don't real come with that recognition, which is what the Eucharist communion is all about, I murdered Jesus. If we don't come to that, then we're going to find a group of people. Not maybe, we will. We will find a group of people, some person, somebody in our lives, whether it be a group, an individual, somebody that the community will rally around that that's the enemy. And the very fact that Christians are doing that right now says they don't know who Jesus is and they are not taking the Eucharist with any revelation of what it's all about. Well, all right, I'm going to uh, see that and raise you. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I'm glad I'm just a dealer. I fold. <laughs> I'm going to open a can of worms here. And, and I'm going to do it intentionally, and then I'm going to throw it over as a question to Michael. Don't we do that in the body of Christ with this preacher or that preacher or, uh, you know, this guy or that guy? Uh, Facebook is crazy with those kinds of arguments. Um, YouTube, you, you can almost bring up any current leader that's recognized on a kind of a global scale or, or national or whatever, And you will find some of the most hateful speech about that person uh, because they believe this or because they they practice this practice or whatever. And, you know, I, I go to, you know, the power of the tongue, okay? Mm-hmm. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. We can kill with our tongue. And, and, and Michael, it, it, I know there are some people that say, well, yes, but, you know, Jesus stood up against the religious leaders that were teaching wrong, and that's all I'm doing. And, 
Is that a fair statement? I, I think I know what your answer might be, but is that a fair statement? Are, are other Christian leaders who teach differently than our understanding, are they fair game? Um, they, in, in terms of their person, are not. Their ideas and their false gospel, however, is fair game. Okay. Now, it's, it's also possible to call them false teachers, okay? But we would, we would absolutely want to qualify what makes someone a, a false teacher. And for me, again, it's very simple. I just analyze somebody's teaching in terms of the non-sacrificial perspective that the gospel revelation brings. And if, if their view is sacrificial, they're a false teacher. They preach an, a, a false Christ. I mean, I find you quoted little John, first John, uh, earlier. Um, do you know what the last line of that book is without looking it up? I remember you said it before. It was about uh, keep yourself from idols. Little children, yep. keep yourself from idols. He's talking to a community where the people have broken apart from them because of their Christology. Their Christology was docetic. It had no humanity to it. And so they weren't feeding the poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so they broke off. What did they have? A false Christ. They had a false view of Jesus. John says, though the, the, these, the Antichrist comes in from within the church. Okay? The Antichrist is not a Satan worshiper. The Antichrist is the ultimate Christian. The Antichrist has this false figure of Jesus. And so I, I mean, when I look out again across the landscape, I go into a congregation, I look at the songs they sing, the scriptures they read, how those texts are preached, the kinds of conversations they have in their adult education classes, if they have any. And I just simply ask myself, is this a congregation who's being taught how to think critically from the perspective of the gospel? Or is this a congregation that when push comes to shove, is going to jump on the it's okay to use violence bandwagon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's interesting because just uh, two podcasts ago, we talked about the, um, the the problems in reading the scriptures from the conservative standpoint and then also from the liberal standpoint. And it was funny because right after we did that podcast, I, I was going through trying to find like different see what the congregations are like around in Milwaukee now that I'm in the area. And I come to this congregation that was exactly what you had talked about, Michael. It was this uh, liberal congregation. At first, I was drawn to it because I'm going, oh, love the outcast, love the other. But there was such a vengeance behind it. It was like you said, when it, I thought you were exaggerating when you talked about the Che Guevara Jesus. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading what this congregation was was had on their website and everything, I was going, I, this is toxic. This is yes poison and and yes we've seen it on the right but i just i just thought it was interesting that right after that you know i ran across this and and it's exactly what you're talking about it's like they're using jesus to say care for the outcast and but then they're using this violent language and and you could tell that it's like it's us against all these evil people out there that we're gonna you know take on the world and yeah, right. yeah so it was um so you're right. It's like you can you can tell sometimes it usually doesn't take very long to tell whether it is a a community of people growing in in Christ crucified right or whether it's a community of people that has a sacrificial view of God. Yes. 
<laughs> that is uh, using violence and, and not afraid to use violence and, and has that in their, in, in their back pocket, if you will, right. should push come to shove. Right. You know, it, we hit these spots every once in a while where all three of us get kind of quiet because it isn't that we don't agree or whatever. It's that sometimes it's like you have to pause and and think about what just got said or what we yeah. what we're saying yeah. what's what's been woven together in our conversation the the importance of understanding the eucharist understanding our place in that whole story that whole scenario where we fit and why it's important I appreciate the way the Lord said it. As oft as you do this, yeah, uh, Michael, what you said, we've sanitized it. Uh, we've made it a ritual on the first Sunday of every month or third Sunday or whatever. But I know other people that, with together with their spouse, they sit down and and they partake of of the Eucharist every day. Yes, and they sit and they reflect on what what is this to us? Right, where am I in this picture? And so it's it's really as oft as we do this, yeah, we testify of something. And and I really appreciate what you were saying. And Warren, you said it in a little bit different way, but you said the same thing. We come away from the Eucharistic table every time changed. We, we it, it's not a ritual we go through and okay well i got through that this month and next month i'll be back here it's we come we come away changed our life has been we've been confronted with a message a living message and now it's like we reflect we reflect on the body of christ we properly discern it we 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 think and and all of a sudden it's like the Holy Spirit. It's almost like the other scripture that says, when you come to the altar and, and bring your gift, if there you remember. And it's many times at the Eucharist that it's there that I remember. Yeah. I have something against a brother or a brother has something against me because of what I've done. Leave your gift and go and be reconciled. And and Eucharist is a is a it is a sacrament of reconciliation. Exactly. Yeah, because because the thing for me is that I my hope is that people believers will realize that the Lord has left us with this wonderful resource to if you will, to help us. He didn't leave us empty-handed, helpless. He he left us with a powerful resource, a powerful tool to help us in our journey following him. It, it wasn't for no reason that he said, do this. He wasn't just saying, Here, here's some empty ritual I want mm -hmm. you to do. Cool. It's, it's that he's left us with help mm -hmm. to, to walk this journey with him, knowing that it's, it's, can be very challenging at times. And and so why would we leave such a, uh, and no pun intended, why would we leave such a, a powerful resource sitting on the table? Go ahead, well, Michael. We, 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 well, I was going to say we would because we don't want to be transformed. 
Right. We'd rather just go through the magic and the superstition. You know, we'd rather have the, we'd rather walk out with the feely good feelings and, you know, oh, wasn't that lovely, you know, and uh, a little afterglow, you know. I always thought most Christians should smoke cigarettes because they come out of Eucharist with that little afterglow on. It's like, I need a cigarette now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're bad. No, I, it's, it's, I remember it, one time. I remember one time arguing with a uh, uh, brother that had grown up in the Catholic Church, and and he was talking about real presence, transubstantiation, and I was like, "No, it's just a symbol." And you know, I was still back in in that understanding, and and he said, "No, it's a sacrament," and I said, "Okay, but what does sacrament may, mean?" and he said something like uh it's it's a it's a grace it's a it's an uh uh physical representation of a spiritual experience and i said yes representation symbol therefore <laughs> you and i are saying the same thing <laughs> and he just like ah! <laughs> that's yeah. too funny <laughs> Well, we're actually at time again, uh, but this has been a great conversation. And wow. I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, Did you enjoy this week, Lauren? I, I enjoyed this week. <laughs> Those of you listening, we recorded these uh, a couple at a time. And so so Michael's hitting on the, yes, this is, this this week, yes, the, the separate week, not, not, the, not the one we just recorded before this one. <laughs> In the shadow of the cross, funny land. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, Michael, where can people find uh, find your books and videos? Yeah, so uh, videos, there are lots of them on YouTube under Michael Hardner, Preaching Peace, and my books are on Amazon. All right, and Jim? And where my can book people... is on Amazon. And for those of you that don't like Amazon, Barnes and Noble has it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I like Barnes and Noble. It's one of the few bookstores still around. You can walk in and get a cup of coffee and sit down and read. I, I like that. Um, also, I actually have a resource this week because um, I worked with uh, my friend Dr. Stephen Crosby on his uh, series on the Eucharist. Um, I, I uh, did the video for it and edited it and everything. Um, I don't know the exact location. So what I can tell you is go to stevecrosby.org and you can uh, find the video series there. Um, you should be able to find, uh, it, I, I don't know, I think he called it the Eucharist. Um, so you should be able to track it down there. So, all right, guys. Well, Excellent. this has been a lot of fun and uh, we'll talk to you all again next week. That's next week, not this week. <laughs> right. Next week. We're not doing another, we're not recording another podcast as soon as we stop this one, Michael. Okay. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.